Hey, Grace. Uh, Rick Matson here. I'm one of the global partners at our church, and Sharon and I have been here now for 24 years. Now, just a few years ago, uh, Sharon was suffering from some really bad shoulder inflammation, and it had been going on for, I would say, at least six months. And we had uh, brought it to the Lord uh, a few times, and nothing happened, and that's not unusual. Sometimes we pray and things happen. Sometimes they don't. We can't force God's hand. But one day in the sanctuary, after a service, uh, we laid hands on Sharon's shoulder, myself and two of our friends, and we just asked God to heal her. And that very day, she was healed. And so we were rejoicing. Uh, and the following weeks, it never returned, so she was completely healed of that. So I shared that with one of my friends, and uh, his, this particular friend is an atheist, and he denied it. And I was kind of disappointed and he said, well, it's not repeatable, it's not testable, you can't put it in a laboratory, we can't reproduce all those conditions, it, can't, it won't happen every time. And I agreed it won't happen every time necessarily. But yes, it was disappointing to have this atheist uh, say, well, it's not scientific, so it wasn't a real miracle. Well, in today's passage, we're going to see a healing that takes place in Jerusalem. And then there's some opposition that sets in to this healing. And it's opposition from people who actually should know better. And I think that was part of my disappointment with my atheist friend. He used to be a Christian. He should know better. God can do these things. In today's passage, we see a healing take place in Jerusalem. And then there seem to be some people who are sort of deniers of it. Not deniers in the same way that my atheist friend was, but they definitely did not rejoice in this healing. And they became opposition to what happened. And they should have known better. Jesus says they should have known better. So the story comes to us here in John 5, 1 through 15. It comes to us in four scenes. The setup, the healing, the inquisition, and the follow-up. And we'll look at those four scenes in a second. Let's pray together as we go before the Lord. God, as I look back uh, maybe five years ago, maybe six years ago, I can't remember exactly, to Sharon's shoulder, I just want to give you thanks that you showed up that day in the power of your spirit and you had mercy on her. And Lord, we know there's no formula. We know that if we pray a certain way or have a certain faith or whatever, that it's going to force your hand and that you have to do it. We don't believe that way at all. We believe this was your grace. This, we believe it was your uh, power poured out that day. And uh, we thank you for it. And as we look at this passage today, I pray that uh, you help us all to receive healing in one form or another. Every person who's watching this video, Lord, we all need healing in one way, shape, or form, and pray that you provide that for us and help us just to learn from your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so scene one is the setup. Verses one through three of uh, John 15 here. It says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, and he goes from Galilee. And I think we have a map of what that journey would be like. Uh, this is about uh, 40 or 50 miles, depending on which route you take. And so it's about a four-day's journey. And wouldn't it be funny 
if uh, you and I got together and we say, hey, there's a festival. It's coming up in, uh, I don't know, Buffalo or Monticello. Great. How are we going to go? Oh, we're going to walk. <laughs> we're going to walk to the festival. Wouldn't that be an odd thing? So it's quite a project for Jesus to go to this festival. But we have to remember that Jerusalem is the center of uh, Jewish life and Jewish identity. So he comes down from Galilee, from the north, uh, and he might go through Samaria at times, or he might go around Samaria, and it's about a four days journey, and this is a really big thing. Well, if Jerusalem is the center of Jewish life and the center of Jewish identity, the temple is the center of the center. The Jewish temple is the center of the center. It's the place where heaven and earth meet, where the people come to make their sacrifices and to meet their God and to reestablish this covenant relationship that they have with God. And I think we have a, a picture here, or a graphic, I should say, of Herod's temple. And you can see how magnificent it really was. And this is the center of the center of Jewish identity. Well, there's this pool. Maybe two pools, we're not sure, but there's this pool just north of the temple, and it's called the Pool of Bethesda. And there are all these people gathered there, and they're wanting to enter these waters, which supposedly when they get stirred up, uh, provide healing. Well, if you dig into the uh, scholarly literature on this a little bit, you find out that this was a, uh, an Asclepius cult. And the Asclepius cult was uh, people coming together all over the Roman Empire at these shrines to receive healing from this Greek god whose name is Asclepius. And so uh, these porticos, these roofs with these colonnades, people would sit under them. And it's near water, and the water represents healing. And so they entreat Asclepius, they entreat this this, uh, uh, mythological god to bring healing to their lives. And that's where we find this man who's coming up here in a moment. Now, you might uh, know a little bit more about Asclepius than you think. The American Medical Association has an insignia, and it's a snake wrapped around a staff, and that is a reference to this uh, Greek god of healing. And at the end of the life of Socrates, Socrates says, We owe a rooster to Asclepius. Pay it and don't forget And Socrates is saying there, uh, I've been sick. My soul has been sick, and now it's going to be set freed here at the end of my life. And so we're going to pay a rooster. We're going to make an offering to this Greek god. So that's the setting. This uh, cultic shrine and all these people waiting to get into the waters of healing so that this uh, Greek god can heal them. Well, scene two. The healing, verses 5 through 9. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. So Jesus comes to the, to the shrine. Jesus comes to this cultic gathering with all these people who by Jewish standards would all be unclean. 
And a good Jewish rabbi would never mix it up with all these unclean people, all these tainted people. Jesus doesn't care about that. Of course he's there. Of course he's there. He's there to bring love and goodness and healing. And so he picks out this one man, and we don't know exactly why he picked out this guy. And he says to him, do you want to get well? And verse 7 then, the man replies, well, there's no one to help me into the water. So when the waters stir, in other words, a few times a day, the underground springs stir the water. And the tradition has it that when the water is stirred, that's when their healing powers are maximized. And you've got to get into the water. And the first one, or the first ones to get into the water, supposedly, will be healed. And he has no one to help him in. And so Jesus says, well, in essence, you know what? You don't really need these waters. You don't need this cult. You don't need this mythological God. I am the Lord of the universe. I am the maker, the creator, and the healer. And I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. No payment is needed either. Unlike Socrates, who wanted to offer a rooster, (laughs) for his healing, the healing of his soul. No payment here is needed. Well, I've been thinking about uh, this man, this disabled man, uh, for a few days. And as some of the staff members here at church and I were studying this passage, we got thinking about this man. He has a kind of uh, spiritual laziness. Yes, he's physically paralyzed. He seems to be emotionally and spiritually paralyzed as well. Later in the passage, as we'll see, Jesus tells him to stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to him. So the man actually doesn't come off in that great of a light here. When he gets up, he never thanks Jesus. They never have a conversation. A relationship has never started. Jesus actually slips into the crowd and goes to the festival. So this man, he seems sort of stuck in the in the, uh, the paralysis of his condition. Yes, physical condition. We sympathize with that. We empathize with that. But there's a paralysis of the soul here as well. And it just got us thinking as we were studying this passage, the staff and myself, uh, what are we stuck in? If Jesus came to us uh, today and said to us, to you and I, uh, do you want to get well? Uh, we would probably say, of what? Hey, I'm good. <laughs> Uh, There's nothing wrong with me right now. And I'm just wondering if Jesus is asking us, no, I think there is something that you need to be healed from. Let me give some examples. Uh, What about, do you have a really uh, controlling personality? Like when you show up, you have to take charge. No one else knows the situation as well as you do. Uh, If stuff's really going to get done, it's got to be done by you. Uh, I know people like that, and they're, they're pretty annoying, actually. And there's a kind of arrogance to being a controller. I know one guy who's a controller at his job, and uh, last year he experienced a renewal in Christ, and he stopped being such a controlling person, and he released control to the Lord and to other people. And it was really an amazing turnaround. You know, the arrogance of controlling other people needs healing. And I'm wondering if that's you today, or if you really are a controller and you're saying, well, no, I'm good. <laughs> or what you're saying is, no, I know I'm a controller, but I don't want to give it up. I want to keep going in this. I, I find something in this. I find value in controlling situations and controlling other people. And Jesus is saying, no, stop sinning. 
You need to be healed. Myself, uh, I tend to be a real busy guy, tend to take on too many commitments. Uh, my wife said to me a couple times this last year, even during COVID when we were home a lot, she goes, you're working all the time. Uh, you work too much. And it wasn't just Sharon's voice, but other voices I think had kind of been speaking to me about my busyness, uh, workaholism, <laughs> get addicted to work. And, you know, part of it is really good because you get stuff done. But part of it is a lack of trust in God that unless I do all these things, I'm not going to have value. Unless I do all these things, the work for the kingdom is not going to get done. It's a lack of trust. And I felt like the Lord was saying to me, do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed from overwork and busyness? And so this winter, after I got done with a really busy season uh, in February, uh, I got so convicted, I went before the Lord. I said, okay, I need to take some time and rest and to receive your healing. And that's what I'm going to do in the next few weeks. And I won't say that I'm completely cured yet. I'm not going to make that claim. But I feel like I've experienced the Lord's healing in that respect, uh, gone a long ways in the right direction. I'm just wondering, what is it for you? Is it overeating? Do you need to be healed from that? Uh, Is it uh, alcohol? Maybe you're uh, sneaking drinks on the side. Maybe it's starting to catch up with you. Or maybe you're a full-blown alcoholic and you know it. And you're just saying, I don't want to be healed. But God is showing up in the person of Jesus. And he's saying, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? So what is your thing? And I'd like for us to take a few moments uh, right now and just pause and reflect before the Lord What do I actually need healing from? Even I might not want that healing. What do I need to be healed from? How am I like this paralyzed man? So, Lord, would you give us the humility, the insight, and the self-awareness to know what it is we need healing from and to stop and to receive that healing from you? And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, will you say yes to healing? That is the question. And that means that we have to admit we need healing. That's the first step. And then secondly, there's a new way of life uh, that needs to be embraced here. And that's what we might be afraid of. We don't want to be healed because we don't want this new life. But Jesus is saying, no, I promise you it's going to be better. Well, that's the healing. That's scene two. Scene three, the Inquisition. Mm, Sounds scary. Verses uh, end of 9 into 13 here. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, Well, the man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Jesus went to the festival. So this guy didn't even know who had healed him. (laughs) You'd have thought that after a healing like that, there would have been this long conversation, this long exchange. Apparently there wasn't. So the Jewish leaders, they object. Uh, This is a Sabbath violation. You've carried your mat on the Sabbath. In fact, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the rabbis, what they had were 39 different categories of work that could not be performed on the Sabbath. Okay, this particular healing is performed on the Sabbath, the day of rest. 
So it's not that these 39 different categories are necessarily found in the Bible itself, but they're part of the oral tradition. The rabbi said, well, how can we really live out the Sabbath? What are some practical ways that we can do this? So they invented these uh, 40 minus 1, they call it, 39 different categories of work that is forbidden. So, for example, one of them is you can't carry anything. So the man is obviously violating that. Uh, and there's 38 others. There are things like, well, you can't cook, you can't bake, you can't plow, you can't uh, work the animals, you can't work the fields, you can't do any work on the Sabbath. And if you do, it's a violation of the Sabbath, which is dishonoring of God. Okay? So the Jewish leaders are very concerned, especially the Pharisees, are very concerned that the Jewish nation honors the law of Moses so that they can receive the blessings of God so that they can get out of this uh, domination of the Roman Empire. It was the Babylonians 600 years ago, and now it's the Romans. And all these things happened because we didn't obey the law of Moses. Well, now we need to obey the law of Moses. So now you've got this violator, this guy, this, this disabled person who's now walking around carrying his mat. We can't have that. <laughs> so you can see the hypocrisy here. You can see... The problem here, the Jewish leaders, they missed the point, just like my atheist friend would refuse to rejoice with Sharon and me that she was healed. The Jewish leaders here, they fail to see what's really happened. All they can focus on are these rules. Verse 12, they ask, who is this fellow who healed you, right? That's what you want them to say. And that's now what they say. Who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk and go home. They're so focused on the letter of the law that they miss the spirit of the law, just like my atheist friend. Well, there's a, uh, a philosopher, theologian, humorist, writer, whatever you want to call him, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, he has a quote that I really love, and it says, the believers in miracles accept them because they have evidence for them. In other words, Christians who believe in miracles, they accept miracles because there's evidence. The disbelievers in miracles, like my atheist friend, they deny them because they have a doctrine against them. They have a doctrine against them. And here, the Jewish leaders, they were so focused on their rules, so focused on their doctrine that they missed a healing. This man was an invalid for almost four decades. Think about how long that is, 38 years. And they couldn't pause to take a moment and thank God and rejoice. Instead, they came down on him hard with this uh, legalistic rule following. In another place in the gospel, here's what Jesus says, Matthew 23. Uh, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. In other words, you tithe part of your food and your, your money, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a whole camel. Jesus is so upset at hypocrisy. You know, a lot of people who don't go to church are upset about the hypocrisy in the church. I'll tell you this, one person who's more upset about hypocrisy among religious people than anyone else, that would be Jesus himself. And so he's very critical of the religious establishment of his day and its hypocrisy in this, this micro-focus on all these rules. Missing the big picture. It's, it's uh, majoring on the minors. 
and failing to major on the majors. It's a kind of pettiness. It's religious pettiness. And Jesus will have nothing of it. Folks, we need to view the law. The law is a fine thing. Jesus doesn't criticize the law per se, but he criticizes an overemphasis on the law. But we need to view the law, the rules, through the gospel, through the lens of the gospel. Jesus is the gospel, his goodness and his mercy. So if you're ever in doubt about what's major and what's minor in a situation, ask yourself this question. What would it mean in this situation to love God and love neighbor as myself? That's the foundational lens through which we can view almost every other situation. If we're unsure if we're majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. Or vice versa. If we're not sure, like, well, what's really important in this situation? We can kind of stand back and put this lens in front of us. What would it look like in this situation to love God with heart, mind, and soul and to love our neighbor as ourself? And once you answer that question, then you can walk into some of these complicated situations and say, well, yeah, I think this is the main point here that we need to focus on and not get too distracted by these minor things. In other words, keep the main thing the main thing. I remember when Sharon and I first came to Grace, uh, this was uh, 24 years ago, as I mentioned, and we were hired as uh, music leaders here. Uh, I ran the first contemporary band at Grace Church. We didn't have a ton of young people coming to the church. We had a really fine traditional music program, music and worship program, and I love the traditional music, no problem there. Got along with those good folks really well. There were a few people in the congregation, though, that objected to this new uh, rock and roll worship or whatever it was going to be. And I happened to have a guitar that was purple. And I remember uh, uh, some of the rule followers in the church uh, came to me and said, well, you're not going to play that purple guitar in, in our church services, are you? And I said, well, yes, I am. That's, they hired me to do that. And so there was this big commotion and this big controversy about my purple guitar. And I was thinking to myself, and I probably said this out loud, I hope I did, I can't even remember, it was a long time ago, but I should have said if I didn't, what we're really concerned about is young people who connect with this style of worship are coming to our church to encounter the Lord Jesus. That's the main thing here. And if it takes a purple guitar to contribute to that, then let's do it. Let's not get distracted. Let's not put our focus there. Let's put our focus on the main thing. So I think the lesson here is let us, you and I, say no to the blinders. The Pharisees had blinders on. All they could see was the law. They missed the gospel. All they could see was this rule breaking, and they missed a healing. Church people sometimes were guilty of this, of just being uh, uh, rules people. just laying down the law, and we miss the grace. So let us say no to blinders. Let us avoid being like the Pharisees here. Thirdly, uh, I should say scene number four here is the follow-up. It doesn't, the story doesn't just end there. Verses 14 and 15, later Jesus found him, that is the disabled man who's now been healed, and said to him, see, you are well again. <laughs> He makes a very obvious observation, but then a word of judgment, a word of warning. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So now they're meeting in the temple. They've left the Greek shrine. 
The man has been healed. You can kind of see the symbolism of leaving the uh, mythological cult and coming here to the temple where God is worshipped. And he runs into Jesus there, coincidentally. And Jesus says, okay, you're well. That, that happened. Now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. In other words, leave your old life behind. Your life that is spiritually lazy, that is uh, paralyzed, that is chasing down home remedies in a Greek shrine. Leave all that behind. That's, that's the sinful life that I want you to leave behind. And I want you to focus on this. The temple, which points toward the temple, which is me, which is Jesus Christ. I want you to have a direct relationship with me. That's what Jesus is saying to the man. You're stop sinning, stop doing that other stuff, or something worse will happen to you. Something worse in eternity will happen to you. It's going to be far worse than the 38 years you suffered, suffered as a disabled person sitting in this uh, shrine here, this cultic shrine. Okay, so stop sinning. In other words, stop sinning. Leave your old life behind and believe in me. Embrace me. And, you know, the man is not put in a great light here. It doesn't say how he responded to Jesus. It says, well, he went away and he told the Jewish leaders who it was that had made him well. And maybe there's different ways to read that. But I would say, overall, this passage does not look kindly. It does not throw a kind light on this man and his response to life to begin with and then life as invited by Jesus. Wow, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And, and the same message is for us. Folks, if you're watching this uh, video today and you're not a believer in Jesus, uh, he's got healing for you. And then at the very same time, he's got a little bit of a word of judgment here for you. He always does. It's the invitation to healing. And then he's saying, but if you don't take the healing, if you don't take the new life, if you don't take the relationship, something worse is, is going to happen to you. So stop sinning. Receive the healing and receive a relationship with me. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus. That's the invitation of the passage. That's the invitation of the whole gospel of John. And here's just one instance, one example of a very direct encounter that Jesus has with a man who's not a believer but should be, should know better but doesn't. And now the invitation is there, and then the invitation there is for you and for me to be believers in the Lord Jesus. Well, in summary, maybe today we just need to pick one of these things. Uh, maybe our job today before the Lord is to say yes to some kind of healing uh, maybe we have an eating problem or a drug problem or an alcohol problem or a controlling problem or whatever it might be, and the Lord is inviting us to say yes to his healing and to admit that we need it and to embrace a new way of life. You can't do all these applications all the time, so maybe that's the one the Lord has for you today. Or secondly, maybe you need to say no to the blinders. Maybe you need to say, okay, I get a bit petty at time. I get a bit focused on the rules at time. Times maybe I need to re-embrace the gospel and its priorities of loving God and loving my neighbor as myself and get out of this rules-based spirituality. Maybe that's your calling today. Or maybe thirdly, you just need to place your faith in the Lord Jesus. That's who we are. Grace Church is a, a group of people who are gathered together in the name of Jesus because we believe in him. We're not perfect. <laughs> Far from it. We're here because we're sinners. 
and we're being remolded into his image. Uh, we often say around here, no perfect people allowed. But what we are invited to is to place our faith in the Lord Jesus and to join the company of saints that will march forward into eternity so that something worse won't happen to you. Let me pray and we'll close today. Lord God, would you, would you help us to embrace this healing and embrace the new life in you and throw off the blinders, but especially Lord, we want to say yes to faith in you today, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.